Well, good morning again. Happy Independence Day. Did anybody watch the movie yesterday, Independence Day, at Old Corny? We're going to talk about some stuff that's um, unimaginable. <laughs> one of the things that came to mind that was unimaginable while I was watching that movie was um, when, if you haven't seen the movie, it's about alien space invaders that come down. And these ships come down and they hover over various areas in, this, in the country. And there's several of them per continent that come down. And these things are just massive. They're so huge that they cast a shadow over most of the metropolitan city. And when, uh, when, when they go in to attack it, because it's, it's been destroying things, uh, these fighters come out. And this ship is so huge that these fighters are actually flying around inside the ship. It's just unimaginable how huge they are. Hundreds of thousands of these things come out of each ship, and there's multiples all over the place. And, and the American fighters and their, and their jets just seem so defeated. Everything they try doesn't work. And so they're holding back their nuclear weapons because they're not sure if they're going to use those or not go to that extent. But um, they try that, and that has no effect at all. And you think about it, and all of these ships are just part of the mothership, which is hovering outside of Earth's atmosphere. And all of these huge, gigantic ships can fit into that ship. And it's just unimaginable how huge that is. It's kind of like uh, the, the speed of light. You think of how unimaginable that is. You know, sound travels at what, like 1,000 feet per second? I think light travels at 186,000 miles per second. And our nearest star is a light year away. So that means if you've gotten a spaceship and traveled, at the speed of light for a year, you would finally get there. And yet, we can see that star with our human eyes sitting on this planet. That just is so unimaginable to me. So we're going to talk about some stuff today that's unimaginable. We're going to go in, in basically four different sections. And what I want to do is, um, normally we teach books of the Bible exegetically, and, and you know we're in uh, the book of Esther, and we're stepping back from that for just a little bit, and we're doing a topical today. And uh, the topic is, well, first I'm going to read to you, and then I'll tell you what the story is. This is a letter from an 18-year-old, and it'll kind of give us a little bit of a starting point, and a couple other things I'll give you that'll give us a little starting point, and then we'll go ahead and dig in. This says, Dear Mom and Dad, it's been three months since I left for college. I've been remiss in writing, and I'm very sorry for my thoughtlessness in not having written before. I'll bring you up to date now, but before you read on, please sit down. You're not to read any further until you sit down, okay? Now, some of you may have read this before. We went around the internet a long time ago. This says, well then, I'm getting along pretty well now. The skull fracture and the concussion I got when I jumped out of the window of my dormitory when I caught fire shortly after my arrival are pretty well healed now. I only spent two weeks in the hospital and now I can see almost normally. And I only get those headaches once a day. Fortunately, the fire in the dormitory and my jump was witnessed by an attendant at the gas station near the dorm, and he was the one who called the fire department and the ambulance. He also visited me in the hospital, and since I had nowhere to live because of burnt out dormitory, he was kind enough to invite me to share his apartment with him. Well, it's really kind of a basement room, but it's kind of cute. And he's a very fine boy. We've fallen deeply in love and are planning to get married. We haven't set the exact date yet, but it will be before my pregnancy begins to share. I know how very much you're looking forward to being grandparents, and I know you will welcome the baby and give it the same love and devotion and tender care that you gave me when I was a child. 
The reason for the delay in our marriage is that my boyfriend has some minor infractions with the law for which he should soon be released after his meeting with the grand jury. I know you'll welcome him into the family with open arms. He's kind and although well not, edu not well educated, he is ambitious. I know that your often expressed tolerance will not permit you to be bothered by the fact that with all of his delightful piercings, he's now having difficulty finding some skin areas large enough to accommodate his next tattoo. I'm sure you'll love him as I do. His family background is good too, for I'm told that his father is an important gun bearer and businessman among the top big city syndicates, which he says are very well, quote, organized. Now that I brought you up today, I want to tell you that there was no dormitory fire. I did not have a concussion or a skull fracture. I was not in the hospital. I'm not pregnant. I'm not engaged. I did not have a boyfriend in my life. However, I am getting a D in sociology and an F in science. And I wanted you to see these marks in their proper perspective. Nothing like comparison to give us a little uh, better perspective. And there's nothing like seeing the depths of our depravity in order to give us a better grip on the greatness, amazing, awesomeness of God's grace. So that's what we're going to look at today, the topic of grace. It's not so much the kind of grace that we are to extend to other people, but it's the grace that God extends to us. Hopefully we can get just a little glimpse that might cause us to take pause or even catch us uh, out of breath just a little bit. It's the kind of grace, God's grace, that drives joy into our hearts so that we can show and tell it to others. So let's open up with prayer. Father, you're in control of all things. And nothing can separate us from you. Not meeting places, not viruses, not any such thing. In your love for us, you've finished it all. How can I stand at the foot of the cross, seeing the great price paid by the most innocent one, his bleeding and broken body, and not humble myself enough for the fault or may we be our today, allowing the Holy Spirit to penetrate our hearts to hear the message that you prepared for us for your service this morning. Amen. So like I said, we'll, uh, we'll try to look at this in, I'm not used to microphones, sorry, I'm just kind of walking away and moving away, so try to minimize that. Um, we're going to look at, like I said, four sections. First, we'll look at uh, God's version of grace. And um, we're going to see our wretchedness, and we're going to see God's response to our wretchedness. But before we go into those, the, the one that makes it four is we're going to take a look at our version of grace. So first, let's look at that. Um, sometimes we kind of think of grace as uh, somebody steps in line in front of us at the store, or the waitress is rude to us, or um, somebody pushes us out of our lane on the highway. And our honey says, uh, now honey, show a little grace. And so we decide that we're not going to show that person that we know how to count to one on our fingers. And maybe we just set a up by extended grace to them. But uh, um, there, there are some other things that we need to look at in order to get a better grip on grace. I, I heard these three definitions that, that kind of help me put it into perspective uh, in, in a sermon by uh, another creature, he said that um, justice is getting what we deserve. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. And grace is getting what we don't deserve. 
we're going to see that there's something even above what our, our, our connection is with that, hopefully. So, as we look at our version of grace, has anybody heard of Corey Tenbu? Okay, so um, she was, uh, she, she, her story is told in a book called Hiding Place, and there's also a movie called Hiding Place. Recommend them very highly. They're, they're really, really good. But the Tenbu family were a family of Christ followers, and they, they lived during the Nazi invasion. And we've got a couple of pictures of what they look like. Uh, this is the Tenbu family. And we're going to be focused on two of them. Uh, the far left one is the oldest daughter, and um, the far right one is Corey. Um, they were very close. These sisters were, were extremely close. And um, <clears throat> they decided, the family decided. Well, let's take a little closer look at, at each one. This is the oldest sister. And what's her name, Michelle? Remember? Um, and the youngest one. This is Corey. So uh, the family uh, was brought an infant who was a Jewish baby, who was orphaned, and they were going to take care of him. Um, but they also knew that it was against the law to provide care for Jews in any way uh, once the Nazis had moved in and invaded. And so they knew they couldn't disobey the laws of the governors that God had put over them unless those laws contradicted God's law. So they thought about this, they prayed about it, and they decided it was their calling to help the Jews. And so they smuggled this baby out of the country for safety. They brought Jews into their home. They protected them. They provided for them. They did this for quite a while. But then they were caught. They were prosecuted by the Nazis. And uh, Corey and her sister were moved into a concentration camp. And it was a place called Ravensbrook. They miraculously smuggled the Bible into the camp. There's a whole story about how that happened as well, how God put all things in place for them to do that. And so they secretly conducted Bible studies with some of the other women. The conditions were just horrible. I think we've got a little picture of that as well. Um, this was a barracks that was designed for 200 prisoners. Um, the Nazis jammed 600 in there. Uh, they were forced into slave labor all day long. If they were late, they were beaten to nearly death. If they were sick, they were beaten nearly to death. They weren't given a chance to recover before they head out the next day for more slave labor. Infections were rampant. And besides other infections, there was lice and there were uh, fleas. And I'm not talking just a couple of lice in your hair like we know of. And then we go to the Walgreens and we get mixed and we get, get rid of it. These were infestations so that when they slept at night, if they could sleep at all, they would lay eggs in their ears and their eyes and their nose. They were constantly filled. Conditions were just atrocious. And on top of this, the guards were cruel. In all of their misery, in all of what they're doing to barely survive, the guards would just kick these people when they're down at their horse. One time, Corey was losing her hope. Her faith was struggling. Her sister was always encouraging her in her walk. And then Corey said that she felt like she couldn't go on any longer and God had abandoned her. Her sister said, Corey, God knew that across the blueprint of our lives was Sam's Ravensburg. 
She was accepting this trial from God. This was where God had put them, and they had work to do. We'll be reading in Esther soon, uh, next week, I think Jesse's preaching. Esther 4.14 says, And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And that's what Corey's sister was telling us. Betsy, Betsy, that's her daughter, her sister's name, Betsy. Betsy became extremely ill, and she was actually dying of this, of this uh, infection. And as her sister was withering away, on her deathbed, Corey told Betsy, because Betsy was once again discouraged, because her only family member that she had any contact with was now leaving her. She said, Corey, there's no pit so deep that God is not sure still. Even after all of that torture, she still had her faith in God. Corey watched her sister get neglected for health care and whatever was in God. A short time later, Corey, again, this is another little story that's amazing much to look into, was miraculously released from this, this concentration camp because of a uh, administrative error. When Betsy and Corey were together, Betsy would tell Corey of these visions that God had given her of a home where people could come and get healing after these atrocities. So Corey went out and she became a public speaker. It started off slow. She just went to churches at first and asked, could she tell her story? And the word got out about her story and how moving it was. And she went out to other churches and spoke. And then she was invited into larger venues and auditoriums to tell her story. But she also went on to start these homes that Betsy had envisioned while she was in Ravensburg. And that's, that's another, like I said, it's a miraculous story how God put all the things in place for those to happen. So Corey knew that this was her calling. During one of her talks, she was in a church in Berlin. And she noticed a man in the back of the room that wouldn't look at her, wouldn't make eye contact, just kept looking away. Corey would try to look out at the audience, and this guy just kept putting his eyes down. Afterwards, he came up to her, and he said, he said this, Ma'am, I saw in the newspaper that you were coming. Do you know me? Then she recognized him. He was much, much older. But it was one of the guards at Ravensbrook who was particularly cruel to her sister Betsy in her dying moments. He said, since the war, a miracle has happened, and I'm now a Christian. I've asked God to give me the opportunity to ask forgiveness from one of my former victims. He offered his hand. Will you forgive me? Of course, if she couldn't. All she could think of was Betsy's suffering at the hands of that man. She turned to the Lord and she simply prayed two words, Lord, help. She recalls it this way. This is, these are her words. So, there was hatred and bitterness in my heart. I remember how my dying sister had suffered through the cruelties of that man. It seemed like an eternity that he held his hand out. But I know from the Bible that hatred means murder in God's eyes. And I said, oh, Father, forgive me in Jesus' name of my hatred. And then I remember from Romans 5, 5, that the love of God is brought into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. And that instant, the Lord took my hatred away. I said, thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have brought into my heart 
God's love through the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father, that your life in me is victorious over my hatred. And at that moment, all of my hatred disappeared, and I said to him, Brother, give me a name. I forgive you all. I think it was even more moving when, when you hear her say, see if the video plays. I had a little trouble with it earlier, but you can hear from her a little street count of the story. She told a little differently each thing. About some time ago, I said I was in the And it came a man to me and said, Ah, Mr. Bone, I am glad to see you. Don't you know me? Suddenly I saw that was one of the most cruel outsayers at a concentration camp. And that man said, I am now Christian, I found the Lord Jesus. I read my Bible and I know that there is forgiveness for all the sins of the whole world, also for my sins. I have forgiveness for the cruelties I have done. But then I have asked God's grace for an opportunity that I could ask one of my very victims forgiveness. And try at the home, will you forgive me? And I could not. I remember the suffering of my dying sister through him. But when I saw, when I seen that I could not forgive, suddenly I knew I myself have no forgiveness. But I was not able, I could not, I could only hate him. <coughs> I took one of these beautiful texts, one of these boundless resources, Romans 5 and thank you, Father, that your love is stronger than my hatred and unforgiveness. That same moment, I was free. And I could say, brother, give me your hands, and I shook hands with him. And it was as if I felt God's love streaming through my arms. You never touch so the ocean of God's love as that you forgive your enemies. Can you forgive? No. I can't either.
It's still not fully God's grace and God's power. God's grace is even more than this, and we're going to take a look at that. We're on section two of our talk today. God's version of grace. We're going to look at Hosea. So you can flip there now. We'll start in Hosea 1, 2. We're going to skip around a little bit. Now hopefully you us just a little closer idea of how big God's grace is. Hosea 1, 2. It says, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of Hordom, and have children of Hordom. He doesn't go and get a beautiful woman who's a virgin, well thought of in the community. God tells him to go get this kind of low level woman of debauchery in the streets. God wants him to take her in as his wife to love and to honor, to have and to hold from this day forward for the rest of your lives. Now, Hosea does it. He takes this woman, Gomer is her name, out of prostitution. He has three children with her. She now has a godly husband, a home, a man who cares for her, loves her, provides for her, protects her. He rescued her from what every woman dreams of in those days. And what does she do? We're going to look at Hosea 3.1. She leaves him. She goes back to her former idols, back to the dangers of prostitution in the streets. She spits it all right back in his face. And what's God telling him to do? Does he say, teach her a lesson? And the Lord said to me, Go again and love a woman, referring to Gomer. One who is loved by another man is now an adulteress. So, despite enormous ridicule by the entire community, I mean, they have to be saying stuff like, Look, Hosea, you tried this once with her. A leopard can't change its spot. She is who she is, right? But Hosea does it again. 3-2. says, So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a leopard to barter. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. Listen to that. So will I also be to you. Promising that he's never going to leave her, that he's always going to care for her. Now, in our economy, again, if if Hosea wanted justice, Gomer deserved to be stoned. That was the rule of the day. If he's going to be sent, like he send mercy to her, he would say, "Let's not have her stoned. Just let her go." But he goes to grace and he forgives her. And he gives us just a little glimpse of God's type of grace. God has to go to the Lord and he takes her back as his own wife. He loves her again. He cares for her. And he dedicates himself to her for the rest of his life. Forever he's going to be with her. He rewarded her. In her disobedience, he rewarded her. 
way I would recommend that as a method for raising your kids. Reward them every time they disobey. That, that's not going to be so well. God's message here in the book of Hosea is this. Even though you are unfaithful, even though you make me angry, even though you spit in my face and disgrace me, I will never be unfaithful to you. I will never be wrathful. I will always be here to you, and I will always, always love you. God's grace is so much more than our idea of grace. Do we need that level of grace? Do we torture and murder like the Nazis? Do we turn to our other idols like Gomer did? Let's take a quick look at our own depravity. Look at, look at the Ten Commandments. They're not a rule book for us to follow in order to get closer to God. No, those are there to show that we cannot get closer to God. We need something else. We need something else. Yes, we are wretched. Romans 3.11 says no one is righteous. No, not one. In Corey Tendon's story, the guard asked her for forgiveness. With Hosea, Gomer did not ask for forgiveness. He just forgave her. Frequently, we don't ask for God's forgiveness because we deny our own sinfulness. We keep on offending him, and he still forgives us and offers grace. Charles Spurgeon gives this little picture of how the Jews treated Jesus in that day. He says, they had a parade for him down the street where he's the main star. I'm paraphrasing a lot of this. So as he went down that street, he was staggering and carrying a massive cross. They sang songs of praise as derisive shouts and cruel taunts. They called him king. And they jammed huge, sharp thorns into his head. They gave him a throne, set up on high above everyone else, on a cross on the top of Calvary. With the title of honor, they looked at his misery during the scourging and the suffering of the crucifixion. And they made fun of him. They stick out their howdy lip, and they mock him, crying like a little baby. While he says that he's thirsty from shock and dehydration, their hospitality was to look at his parched, dry, cracked lips and push vinegar into them with a sponge. They watched the drops of crimson on the ground and they spit on those drops, same way that they spat in his face. With every laugh, with every agonizing moment, they tell him, this is all useless. He offered to take on the death penalty that they were sentenced to so that they would never have to. Grace. God's love grace. Bonhoeffer said this about grace. He says, Chief grace is the grace without the cross. Grace without the living in Christ Jesus. Costly grace is the gospel. It costs people their lives. Because the life of God's Son. Nothing can be cheap to us, which is costly. Yet they cheated it. 
week. How do we turn off? We show you our bridegroom. We're going after our other idols. Well, how about when we make our own decision, neglecting to take our prayers to God, asking Him how to direct us and how to proceed? We say, we don't need you. And we jam those huge three-inch long briars and thorns into His head. Every time we sidestep God, when He closes the door, and we back it down and we say, I know better than you. We throw that whip filled with hooks like fish hooks and barbs. They stick into his back and we tear off his flesh. Every time we believe the gospel is not enough to fix our broken marriage or our nation's depravity or our own private sin, and we try to fix it all, by using our own ideas and gritting our teeth and trying to change behaviors, we say to Jesus, you didn't do enough. Now I have to do enough. And we shove that bitter vinegar into those dry, cracked fissures of his lips. How about when we believe that we're responsible for our own accomplishments? Instead of giving God the credit for giving us the intelligence or the physical ability or the resources to get it done, we say that we did it. We strip it naked. We play a card game to try to win his clothes while he's behind us struggling and gasping for breath. Sometimes we turn to escapes like an overindulgence in our accomplishments or food or alcohol or we become a workaholic or a schoolaholic or a videoholic. Engaging unhealthy sexual activity. We're telling him, your grace is not sufficient. We need more than that. We need to give ourselves something. We tease him. We mock his people. While he's up on the cross, we stick out our little pouty lip and we say, oh, what's in there? What's in there? If we keep working to earn our own salvation, pretending and performing, even though Jesus says it's finished, we deliver another blow of the sledgehammer and we smash those nails just a little bit deeper into his hands and his feet, just to make sure that our sin keeps him up there. We watch the crimson drops hit the ground and we spill. And we do these things in our normal course of living out each and every day, each and every hour. We continue to tear the flesh with his back, but even worse, we're tearing his heart out. Do we weep over this one body? Do we mourn that it's our sin that holds him there on the cross? Do our hearts actually ache that we are separated from the Father? And it cost Jesus so dearly in order to bring us back. So if justice is what we want, then we deserve death right now, this second, in this place. And eternal torment. That's justice. So yeah, I would say we desperately and critically need God's level of grace. The unimaginable good news is that he gives it unreservedly. That's our first section. God's response.
responds to our wretchedness. It's the gospel. It's Romans 5.8. That while we were yet still sinners, or what I like to hear it as, is while I'm still sinning, Christ died for us. Christ died for us. He looks at us while we're still doing these atrocious things. We don't even ask for forgiveness usually. And he sends his son to the death. And because we follow this humble, humble Jesus, God offers us mercy. He gently smiles. He opens his arms. And he forgives us. But then he goes even further than that. He goes on beyond mercy, beyond forgiveness, and he gives us a gift. He raises Jesus from the grave. And with that, he says, I'm taking care of you in my place. It's been prepared specifically for you for millennia. You can't even begin to imagine its beauty and its extravagance. I'll take complete and total loving care of you for the rest of eternity. I'm adopting you as my own child to be in my glorious presence. That's going to be your new identity. A child of royalty. Remember the story of Mary when she didn't spare the expensive perfumed oil and, and it poured all over Jesus? She poured it out unreservedly. God spares no expense and he pours out everything over us. Jesus lavishes grace on grace on grace unreservedly on us. He drapes us with his robe of righteousness. Ephesians 1.7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us. In Ephesians 4, 7, how does this come about? But well, grace was given to each one of us according to what? The measure of Christ's gift. God sent His own dearly loved, precious Son to lead His perfect, beautiful kingdom to come down to this scummy, ugly place filled with debauchery and become our sin. So the sin could be put to death. He became sin and he was put to death and then put our sin to death. He became so much of our sin that his father, with whom he'd never been separated, he'd never experienced a bad community with his father. Jesus had to, had to stay on the cross while God turned his face. Jesus' most agonizing moment, making it the bottom of the deepest pit. Jesus went through that hellish, hellish experience so that we would never have to. But it all goes even a step further than that. I'll say it again because it is the whole gospel. Then God raised Jesus from the grave so that we are now drenched unreservedly in his righteousness and so that we can go into the kingdom. No. Wait, it's even more than that. We are adopted by him into his family. And we're given ownership of the kingdom as co-heirs with Jesus. Ephesians 2.19, and then connecting on to it, part of Romans 8.17, it says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the members of the household of God. That we are children of God. 
And if children, then heirs. Co-heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. That's just crazy. I don't get it. We commit a crime and He rewards us. That doesn't make any sense. But God says in the book of Isaiah, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Let's take even one level higher and crazy. It's ours. All we need to do is claim it. All we need to do is claim it. Making that claim completely gives us untold comfort. What a beautiful story from a perfect father who loves us so dearly that it's unimaginable. So what do we do about it? You're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus or you're not sure if you're a follower of Jesus. Claim it. It's yours. Receive those comforts. And if you're already a believer, then I've got two things for you. And if you're a doer who likes to check things off, this isn't going to make you happy because there aren't things you can just check off and get done. First, absorb yourself in the beauty and security of that truth, of those untold comforts. Be drenched in it. Let it just wash over you. God wants to give it to you. How do we know that? Scripture tells us. Luke 12, 32. Fear not, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Receive the beauty and the security and the joy of that truth that God offers you. See how much God loves you? Beyond justice, beyond mercy, beyond our human version of grace, all the way to God's version of grace. Corey Tentum had something she should say in some of her talks. It says, look at the world and you'll be distressed. Look inside and you'll be depressed. If you look at God, you'll be depressed. Second thing, let that joy and that rest drive you to give it away. Like I said before, it's this kind of grace, God's grace, that drives joy into our hearts so that we can show and tell others about it. In our evening devotional for June 6th, Spurgeon said this, When God's people are rejoicing that they are His, what a happiness it is to say so. When they speak of being pardoned and justified and accepted in the Beloved, how happily will you respond with, It's through the grace of God that this is so. This claim has not only its pleasures and privileges, but also conditions and duties. We must share with God's people in the clouds as well as the sunshine. When we hear them treated with contempt and ridicule for being Christians, we must come forward and say, so am I. When we see them working for Christ, giving their time and their talents and their whole hearts to Jesus, we must be able to say, so do I. Oh, let us prove our gratitude and our devotion. May we live like this who, having claimed a privilege, 
are willing to take the accompanying responsibility. He's saying that God's grace is indeed amazing. In light of this grace, God has joy and a work that he's called us to. A work that's for our benefit and is for his kingdom. So the fact that he lets unbelievers live just one more second in order to have the opportunity to accept his gift and the invitation to be in paradise is astounding grace. The fact that he lets us as believers live one more second with opportunities to glorify him by inviting others into it. It's incredible grace. So what we look at today, we look at the fact that our version of grace is nothing compared to God's unimaginable grace. How wretched we are and how much we're in need of God's grace. And this kind of grace is only available to us by claiming through the precious fountain of blood and the crushed body of Jesus that drapes over us as righteousness. Which really doesn't make any sense to us. But God's economy is all upside down. We offer idolatrous betrayal and he rewards us because of Jesus. And because of God's mercy that's given to us by the forgiveness that comes from Jesus' death and God's grace given to us through Jesus' resurrection, we're a bit like going to traitors who are taken care of and taken in. And that joy grace drives us to share it with others. Ephesians 2 8 sums that up. For by grace you have been saved through faith. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. So know this. God's grace is immeasurable. The joy of God's grace. And then take it to go out and share it with somebody. So maybe next time we say something like, God's mercy and grace are new every day. I'm hoping that this will take just a little extra second to think about the depths of that grace. We toss that word around a lot sometimes. But next time you say it, think about the depths of that grace. Father, your grace is indeed sufficient. Teach us to walk in the beauty of nature. that kind of grace to us as a response.